This podcast was produced on the land of the Gadigal people. We acknowledge their traditional ownership of this land and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this podcast mentions the names of deceased persons. Listeners are warned that there may be words and descriptions that may be distressing. Hello and welcome to The Road to Find Out. My name is Carla Field and today I am joined by Dr. Carolyn Mackay, a wonderful professor in the School of Law at Sydney University. Welcome. Thanks so much, Carla. Yes, I'm uh, I'm actually not a professor. You've given me a promotion. So thanks so much. <laughs> I hope I'm looking forward to the increased pay packet. <laughs> uh, so I'm a senior research fellow at the Sydney Law School and I'm also one of the directors of the Sydney Institute of Criminology. So that's what I do from an academic point of view. And uh, as well as that, I have sort of a par- parallel career in the visual arts. Fantastic. And you have a very decorated career, I do understand, of you've been an Archbold Um, finalist a few times and for those who don't know it's a very renowned and well-respected portrait competition uh, for painting I believe in New South Wales it's um, incredible to go look at the finalists every year they're absolutely stunning so um, you've been uh, I think a finalist a few years in a row haven't you? Um, I've been a finalist twice in my life I've been much rejected but that's sort of uh, the life in the arts (laughs) no matter what sort of arts you're doing Mm. Uh, so uh, yeah no I've been hung in that twice as well as some other really significant national um, art art exhibitions and I've had a couple of solo shows got another one coming up sometime soon which we might talk about a bit Mm. later. Of course oh good congratulations that's so exciting to hear and also just so impressive because a lot of people when they think of lawyers they'd be like oh they're just very one track mind of just the law and um, and don't think about there's another whole creative side to some people like yourself which is really exciting to hear so let's dive straight in um how did you find your way to becoming an academic so we'd love to hear your journey oh okay it's a bit of a convoluted sort of story um I think I've focused on living a life rather than necessarily making a career and, and my existence has been a bit peripatetic, a bit all over the place, I guess. So um, I went to um, University of New South Wales Law School back in the day and I did commerce law. Then um, I pretty much majored in law reviews, drinking copious amounts of coffee <laughs> and uh, partying, crashing my mother's car, things like that. But um, I don't know how I got through the commerce part of my degree. That was just ag- absolutely absolutely excruciating for me, but I did somehow. But I really loved the law. Mm. And um, so while I was a law student, I actually worked for a medium-sized law firm in Sydney City, but I also had some experience in criminal law, both through Redfern Legal Centre, as well as uh, during one of our summer vacations, I spent a winter in London and worked as a legal clerk um, in East End of London uh, in in a legal aid firm. And that was really fascinating. That was the first time I ever went to a prison. Um, So I started off um, sort of in more law side of of things. Um, I had... uh, a couple of different jobs. Um, one of my, the main focus of my work, I suppose, ended up being in anti-dumping trade disputes. So it's got nothing to do with <laughs> garbage, yeah. um, everything to do with pricing differential mm. or differential pricing between countries. So yeah. I ended up uh, working in um, 
trade disputes, and that led me to uh, working in Tokyo for a couple of Fantastic. years. Yeah, that was that was awesome. Really <laughs> great experience. Um, and then after a period of time, I was sort of working and doing very well. Had this, you know, great career. But then I decided to have a few babies <laughs> along the way, and uh, that was. Um, kind of difficult to mm. be sort of having a very high profile, um, high powered kind of job mm. and ha trying to be a good parent as yeah. well. So uh, I got to the point where I thought this is just really not working very well for me. At the same time, I've always been a very creative person. And uh, so at that point in my life, I decided to dump the sensible career and I went to art school instead. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you had already been a mother at this stage and you were in your let's say like 30s. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you went to art school. So was that 3 years? Yes, that's oh, right. Terrific to hear. That's it's just oh, it's so good to hear. <laughs> no, it, I'm sorry. It's just very exciting to hear people pursue their passion still just even if you have like a really well-respected career and you're going okay I'm also wanting to try this as well mm. um so how did you find art school oh just loved it I really loved it I mean I went to, the first art school I went to was a very conventional art school mm. so I spent the first year just uh working with pencils or charcoal and, and drawing from the skeleton or the plaster cast before I was allowed to graduate and go into the life room and actually have a live model and then pick up mm. oil paint. So it was very traditional, but it actually really grounded me really well in the craft mm. of painting, tone, composition, colour, theory, all those sorts of things. So it was actually really good. Um, and uh, I eventually ended up doing postgraduate art studies at Sydney College of the Arts, which was a lot more conceptual. Fantastic. So when you mean conceptual, what do you mean by that? Because I'm not into, well, I'm not well familiar with the visual arts as, as much as I'd like to be. So could you explain to us what that means? So I guess um, there's so many different forms of, of visual art, mm -hmm. um, as you'd be well aware. So I guess my traditional um, form of art training was very much about representation and mm. observing exactly what was in front of me. So at the moment, I can sort of see the perspective of uh, what I'm looking at from this you know, point of view. Mm. Um, and if I was doing it from a traditional point of view, I would be trying to create a very faithful rendering of what mm. I'm actually perceiving at this point in time. I guess from a conceptual point of view, it's a I, I would suggest it's a, a more intellectual exercise. It's mm. actually more getting in, uh, immersed in, um, you know, theory. Mm. Uh, in, in many respects, it's it's much more akin to uh, an academic form of uh, of engagement, I guess. You know, certainly an in intellectual engagement, mm. uh, but it's both. Uh, conceptual is is looking at the concept. What is the actual concept that you're thinking of? Um, and it's a lot less about coming up with representative art that mm. people can immediately say, oh, yes, that's a nice bunch of flowers. Um, conceptual art often is more challenging and mm. uh, requires people to sort of stand with it or, you know, view it for a p period of time and actually mm. try and contemplate what they're looking at. Um, mm. So I, I guess it's it can be more challenging sometimes too challenging. <laughs> you know, I mean, I suppose if it's a visual art, you still got to have some sort of visual element. Um, but of course, conceptual art is um, sometimes audio, um, sometimes other um, engages with some of the other senses as well, you yeah. know, such as sense yeah. of smell, yeah. sense of taste even. Yeah. Of course. So it's very immersive and really plays on the senses. Yeah. So can, you went to this really traditional art school. What happened after? 
Oh, so I I went to art school. Then I sort of set up my studio practice, Fantastic. and yeah, that immediately went really well. And as you mentioned earlier, Carla, that I uh, went straight into you know being quite successful and mm. being hung in some you know good national art prizes. Um, so that was fantastic, and did lots of group shows, a few solo shows. But I got to the point of feeling a bit. Um, like I could do it all and it wasn't very challenging. So that, at that point in time, I went and uh, looked at doing further study and that's what took me to Sydney College of the Arts. So I first Fantastic. of all did a master's by um, coursework, which I loved. And unlike my undergraduate uh, degree, which was pretty um, average, I guess, um, going back to do postgraduate and doing something I was really, really mm. interested in, I blitzed it and got straight oh. HDs, which was incredible. Mm. Um, and having sort of done so well in that, I started to look at research. So I enrolled in a master's by research also at Sydney College of the Arts. Now for that particular uh, master's by research, of course, you've got to come up with your own research proposal. Mm. And I came up with one called Word of Mouth. Mm. And I, it sort of harkened back to my early criminal law kind of experiences. Yeah. I started, started to draw upon that. And um, what I was looking at in that particular project was um, going to murder trials and sitting in the public gallery and I was looking at the nature of giving eyewitness testimony in a murder trial um, and what is it to be actually in a witness box in a shared you know, co-present space where mm. you've, you're in a courtroom, there's the accused, mm. there's, um, excuse me, the, the jury... Um, there is um, you know, the public gallery, the judges, the lawyers, everyone is in that shared space and to be standing in the witness box or sitting in the witness box mm. and giving an account mm. of your truth of that experience. So from that, I, I would sort of sit there and observe and take sort of fragments of that eyewitness testimony. I sort of came up with my own version of a transcript mm. Mm. Um, and with those text, you know, fragments, I created some uh, audio-visual works mm. that were then exhibited uh, for, um, for, for my master's exhibition. Mm. So for a master's by research, you, uh, we had to put forward a, a, both a dissertation and an exhibition. Mm. So um, when I finished that, when I was having my exhibition rather, one of my old law buddies from my undergraduate days came along to the exhibition and saw it and said, oh, Carolyn, you know, lawyers might be really interested in what mm. you're doing, looking at the nature of being physically embodied mm. in a courtroom and giving your testimony. And that got me thinking um, about what I'd like to do next. Mm. And I really found that I enjoyed research so much. So I was very keen to actually then go and apply to do a, a PhD. And I'd always thought, well, I'll, I'll just go to another art school. I'll mm. stay at SCA and do a PhD or go to another art school. But when my friend sort of mentioned that, I thought, oh, I wonder if the law school <laughs> would be at all interested in what I'm doing. Yeah. So I took my crazy proposal to a postgrad night and spoke to a professor and she immediately said, yes, you should apply. This is really interesting. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I started doing my PhD at Sydney Law School. So it's kind of a bit of a circular journey, I suppose, uh, from law, leaving law, coming back to, the, to law, but still, um, you know, through the lens of mm. 
um, you know, 20 years of um, artistic practice. So it had sort of shifted quite a bit. That's so powerful. So when, if I can just bring it back to those being in the space and in that room of those murder trials, did you find that very confronting? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, um, I mean, a lot of criminal trials are very confronting, mm. uh, especially if it's in relation to some sort of physical violence. And obviously mm. murder is, you know, at the top of the hierarchy when it comes to uh, violent offences. Mm. So, yeah, it was um, always very um, confronting to be in those um in, in those places. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, there's some, you're, you're hearing really disturbing stories yeah. and um, a lot of people who are eyewitnesses to some form of violence um, have obviously gone through a great trauma themselves. So it's, um, yeah, it's very difficult to hear what they've got to say. Mm. Um, and of course, the whole room is quite charged because, mm. you know, perhaps on one side of the courtroom, you have the family of the accused person Mm -hmm. and perhaps on the other side of the courtroom you've got the family of the perhaps if it's a murder there's obviously a deceased person somewhere um so it is high you know high emotion Mm. high stakes because you know the punishment for murder is very high Mm. um and uh so it's very hard to not get caught up in the emotion Mm. you know I've been in cases where pretty much everyone in the public gallery is crying and, Mm. you know, can't always see if some of the lawyers or the judge are emotionally moved as well. One Mm. can only guess. Having said that, there are times when it's quite amusing too Mm. that there's, uh, I think in any court case, there's moments of levity, which is probably not a bad thing because I think otherwise it's... It's uh, so so sad (laughs) the whole time. Just so, so, so sad. And it is, and it ultimately is. It's a tragedy for everyone concerned. Mm. Um, but there are there have been some instances where it's been quite funny. Do you have any examples of instances? Oh well, one um, that comes to mind is that there was a case. It was a murder case, and uh, oh, I can't remember the exact uh, what was going on. But the uh, the witness was being quizzed about where they had hidden. I think it was had hidden a weapon. I can't remember mm. if it was a knife or a gun. Anyway, the witness. Um, was trying to explain where they hidden it, but didn't know the words for where they had hidden it. They, mm. They'd actually hidden it in a um, in the manhole cover in the ceiling of a bathroom. But anyway, mm. he was struggling to actually say that, and he was just telling the judge, "Well, it's it's that place in the bathroom where you 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 know you hide your stuff, you know where you <laughs> where you hide your cash, where you, where you hide your you know your guns and things." And and you know, finally, you know, I can't remember if it was a judge or one of the lawyers said, "Oh." like the ceiling manhole cover and it was just, yes, yes, it's that. But it was kind of this assumption that we all have that space in our ceiling for hiding our (laughs) proceeds of crime and our weapons. Oh, that's so funny. Um, Yeah, that's that's amazing to hear like in such a serious situation that just how human the moments can be as well of just like misunderstandings or yeah things being lost in translation so that's amazing so coming back to your PhD what was your thesis focusing on yeah so the the focus of my thesis really came out of the masters by research so masters by research was looking at what happens in the courtroom when we're all together in a traditional courtroom space mm. and uh, you have witnesses, you have the accused, all the parties are actually in that shared space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, But during that process of looking at that piece of research, I realised that there was a lot more technologies uh, 
being introduced into courtrooms in Australia as, as they were um, all around the world. And I became very aware that people were sometimes appearing on a video screen mm. and they were actually remote from the courtroom and yet they were sort of part of the proceedings. Mm. I was really interested to find out more about that. Mm. So, you know, to put together a PhD proposal, you actually have to spend a lot of time researching what you're going to research. Mm. And uh, so I sort of spent probably about a year putting together a proposal and, and researching this particular area. But I've, I realised that there was a, um, a growing use of audiovisual links between mm. prisons and courtrooms. So what we've sort of seen since the 1990s in Australia and other countries is that for quite a lot of criminal proceedings, people who are incarcerated um, either awaiting their trial or once they have been convicted of an offence, um, they have that uh, they appear in court but using an audiovisual link or video mm. conferencing. So very similar to what we've all been using for the last, <laughs> the last couple of years, yeah. Zoom and Teams and all those sorts of things. So, mm. uh, But these people in prison, they have to go into a very small um, audiovisual booth in the prison and sit there and have their day in court or, you know, appear for whatever uh, legal proceeding is going on. Mm. So I was really interested to find out more about that prison end point mm. of the audiovisual link. What was it like at that prison end point? Because I could see um, the way that the cameras were picking up the background. It looked terrible. And mm. it just, uh, you know, people were sitting there wearing their prison uniforms in New South Wales. Uh, people in prison wear a green uniform. So mm. I was really interested that they were immediately identified as someone who was, who was incarcerated, Interesting. sitting on a screen. They were it, The whole proceeding was about them, but they were the only person who wasn't actually yeah. in the room. Wow. <laughs> so I was so really interested to go to prison and talk to people about their legal experiences. Mm. And was that very profound for you as well, to hear the stories from prisoners themselves? Absolutely, yeah. Look, it was um, an amazing bit of experience. Uh, research for me, great experience. Um, so yeah, so for the PhD, I obviously had to get ethics approval to go and spend time in various New South Wales uh, prisons and interview people in prison on a one-to-one -one basis, just like we're doing at the moment, <laughs> just sitting across a desk from them, except it was all detention grade and fixed mm. down. Um, so I spoke to them um, about their experiences of using this technology to appear in court or um, using the technology for legal conferencing as well to mm. actually get legal advice and to give their lawyers um, instructions as mm. well. So, um, yeah, we, I basically was trying to find out what they liked about the technology mm. and 100% of the people I spoke to liked this technology as a means to avoid going on the dirty old prison trucks yeah. um, because if you have to be trucked to court from a prison, they usually wake you up like in four in the morning. Mm. Um, you have to go and get strip search before you leave. You then sit in this very uncomfortable, dirty truck, go to court, come back, uh, have to be strip searched again before you enter the prison. Mm. And then you might come back and find that you've lost your cell. You might have lost some of your 
positions, uh, things like that. So Mm. 100% people said they liked the technology to avoid that. Mm. Um, But when we sort of dug a little bit deeper in the interviews, uh, people came up with some amazing stories Mm. and uh, perspectives on on using the technology. Some people said they just loved the technology regardless. (laughs) Uh, But basically the majority of people did identify losses Mm. that they had experienced. So, for example, they – were, they felt there was a, um, a, a diminution, if that's right. Yeah, that's the right word, in their connection with their lawyer, yeah. uh, their legal representatives, that they couldn't have a little quiet uh, whisper, mm. um, uh, you know, through, um, you know, just have a little quiet whisper mm. uh, in the courtroom with their lawyers. They couldn't be in the vicinity of their family because usually family members yeah, will come along. Mm. Yeah. So they sort of had that loss of connection. Um, they felt that generally the quality of communication was often quite poor because the technology uh, not infrequently failed. Uh, on several days when I was spending time in prison, people mm. were coming back and saying, oh, the video's not working oh, or no. the audio's not working or they're both not working. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Mm. So um, communication is impacted. Confidentiality, if you're, you know, having to have, um, you know, a full and frank disclosure with your lawyer about things, people get very concerned about who might be listening. Yeah. And then I guess the other issue was comprehension, that mm. people felt that they could understand better what was going on if they were actually in their shared courtroom mm. with everybody yeah. else. Wow, that's that's really difficult and to hear. So, But it's become extremely common. Is that what you were saying before? Yes. So it has been increasingly um becoming yeah becoming more and more common over the last couple of decades and of course since the pandemic Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's basically been um, essential to Mm. keeping the courts going Mm. that um, we've now very much shifted to this notion of digital justice Mm. and remote justice or distributed justice or e-justice there's a whole lot of virtual justice which I think is an even worse term but um, (laughs) So we've very much moved to that mode, but the technologies have actually enabled court matters to still be continued. Mm, That's so interesting. So um, regarding some of these amazing but quite confronting exhibitions you've put on and and even your own work, um, like even with the eyewitness trial, you're dealing with quite confronting personal stories. Are you trying to understand why the, the why of criminals or perhaps why people offend or are you trying to kind of do a visual essay of um, representing what happened what are you trying to achieve okay so with that particular body of work um, word of mouth I was actually kind of looking more at how eyewitness testimony provides the sort of the who what why and how of uh, of a murder Mm. and I'm sort of interested in how we weave together some legal truth, to come Mm. back to that word, that truth of what occurred. And I think it's just criminal trials, I'm sorry, murder trials in particular are interesting because the victim, of course, is never there. Mm. Whereas most other criminal trials, if there is a victim, because there's sometimes victimless uh, crimes as well, but if there is a victim, typically they are there as a witness. Mm. But in a murder trial, they're, they're absent. Of course. And so we're kind of reconstructing what occurred through all these other bits of uh, of evidence. Mm. You know, there's obviously physical evidence, there's circumstantial evidence, but there's also the evidence of eyewitnesses. 
And of course, eyewitnesses have all sorts of different perspectives. You know, yeah. It depends on where they were, what they saw, what they heard, mm. things like that. Because often people are, are an ear witness rather than an eyewitness. Mm. So it's at the end of the day that we plat together these narratives to kind of create some concept of this uh, great tragedy that has actually occurred off stage. Mm. None of us uh, have been there. It's not actually not obviously in front of us at the moment. Um, so I was kind of more interested in looking at this creation of the, the narrative and mm. how these disparate perspectives come up to, um, to basically create some idea mm. of what happened. Wow. Who done it? Yeah. It's amazing. Part of my making of the work was to look at the nature. I, I sort of, I think in my dissertation at the time, I sort of wrote about what is it to be standing in this co-present space, this very special space where we make meaning. Um, so a courtroom is, you know, a, a specific civic building. It's mm. a civic space where we traditionally, and this has all changed since the pandemic, <laughs> but traditionally we have come together mm. in this special designated space that is used for nothing else other than to create meaning mm. as to what has actually occurred mm -hmm. for someone to be made responsible for the action mm. or for someone to be found, well, actually, you're not responsible for the action for whatever reason, mm. uh, that we determine uh, questions of justice. Um, so I'm sort of really interested in that notion. I'm sort of very interested in in that space as a place of making meaning, making a truth, mm. a truth as I talked about before, that is a contingent truth. That's mm. It's a truth for legal purposes. At the end of the day, the accused person mightn't be happy with the truth mm. or the victim or the victim's family may not be happy with that truth, depending yes. on the outcome. So just pivoting back to art, because I think this is so interesting hearing, obviously you're so well-researched, you have all this, this experience now as well. Um, what would you say your relationship with art is, especially in relation to crime and the law? Oh, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I feel a level of frustration that I don't, don't have always enough time to spend on my art practice still. But I have, um, even though I work full time now at the University of Sydney, I do make sure I have enough time um, to uh, attend to my art practice as well and keep it going at least at a, some sort of level. Um, <laughs> so I've been doing a few things, like I've curated a couple of shows. Um, in 2018, I curated a very sort of major show called Justice in Justice. Mm. Um, Could I've you talk to us about that? Oh, because okay, it's sure. Because it's super interesting. So after doing a bit of research, um, Carolyn did this amazing show with, um, it was a collaboration with lawyers and artists. So can you tell us about what you explored in that show? Sure. Yeah, it was an exhibition that was at the um, Lockup, which is a really amazing space in Newcastle. It's a, an old police station, I think built in the 1860s that's mm. now been repurposed as a um, contemporary art space. Um, so Justice and Justice was actually initiated by three lawyers in Newcastle who had been involved um, in a number of high-profile public interest cases, mm -hmm. uh, cases to do with um, Aboriginal deaths in custody, mm. um, wrongful um, convictions, wrongful deaths at the hand of, hands of police. Mm -hmm. um, what else? Um, 
uh, oh, some you know really failed investigations mm. as well. So it was a number of very interesting uh, cases that we looked at. Mm. Uh, very well, some of them were very well known cases. Some of them perhaps not so well known. Mm. Um, anyway, so the th three lawyers thought it'd be great if um, they could work with some artists and get the artists to actually respond uh, to these public interest cases um, that represented. Uh, moments of great injustice mm. in, in the Australian criminal law system. Um, so I was brought in to work with the lawyers and with the lockup um, arts people and to sort of identify artists who might be good to be mm. involved in this project. So, um, yeah, we sort of um, started – I identified, sorry, um, six artists mm -hmm. uh, in conjunction with the lockup. And uh, we included a seventh artist who didn't create new work. We actually just included his existing work mm. uh, because it just so clearly spoke to the um, whole theme of that mm. particular exhibition. So there were a number of um, uh, two cases um, in relation to, for example, Aboriginal deaths in custody. So yeah. that uh, extant work was by a Melbourne artist called Richard Lua, mm. and he had created an animation a couple of years ago in relation to um, the death of a young Aboriginal um, your boy, he was only 16, mm. um, called John Pat, and he died in Roeburn in Western Australia. And his death um, occurred, there was a fight with some off-duty police officers. He was put into police custody and he died of his injuries um, in police custody. His death after, you know, maybe 99 other Aboriginal deaths in custody was the catalyst for the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, uh, which came up with a whole lot of findings and recommendations, mm. most of which have not been no. implemented and this continues to be a major issue in our criminal justice system. Mm. That's, yeah, very confronting to hear as well. And was it, once you put the exhibition on, was it really profound having people walk through that space? And because the way you've described it, it just sounds like it would be so much more just playing exactly what you're saying before about conceptual art, it plays on your senses, but did it move a lot of people, did you think? Oh, I think so. It was one of the most successful um, exhibitions that they'd held at the lockup. It actually won an award as well. Um, and I do think it was an incredibly strong exhibition. So, um, yeah, absolutely massive congratulations to the artists involved because I know they all found it very difficult. Mm. Basically all the artists worked with the lawyers and got their insights and their stories about what it was like to work on these um, cases. And in some instances, they actually worked with um, people who were incarcerated. So, for example, one artist was working with um, a woman called Kathleen Folbig, who's been... She's very famous. Yes. Um, I studied her in school. Oh, did you? Yes, <laughs> okay. did. Wow. So she um, had been convicted of the manslaughter... Um, of her children. Of her, oh, sorry, murder of her children and mm. manslaughter of one, or was mm. it the other way around? I don't know. The four of her babies died. Mm. Um, and... Um, 
So uh, she was actually incarcerated and she still is incarcerated. But at that particular point in time, she was lobbying to have her uh, case heard again. Mm. So it was a really interesting situation at that time. And the artist involved in that actually ended up having quite a bit of communication uh, with her. So. and uh, the artist actually was given permission by Kathleen Folbig to make use of her personal diaries to create the artwork. Wow. Um, and the personal diaries were actually a key, key evidence key in evidence. the trial. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Sorry, this is blowing my mind. Like, she, yeah, her case is fascinating and, yeah, just disturbing as well. So it's amazing to hear that artists are still, yeah, really getting out there and yeah being involved oh totally yeah I mean they, they are all the time you know it's not just in that um, exhibition obviously mm. but I do think that um, because the case some of the cases were quite well known they were mostly pretty well known mm. uh, so people were quite interested in them and mm. interested in seeing these other perspectives and yes. I do think that the artists very much um translated all the legal documentation that they were given and they turned it into another experience. And Mm. by doing that, they sort of really amplified some of the issues of injustice. They, you know, it's not just about reading stories Mm. of someone who has been convicted of, you know, killing their children, Um, but to actually be immersed in this space kind of really made it a lot more poignant. Now, Mm. one of the artists who's now known as Bianca Willoughby, uh, created a work about uh, another Aboriginal death in custody in in relation to Eddie Russell. And that particular work Mm. was in two of the cells um, in the lockup. So the lockup still has traditional, you know, police cells in the Mm. place. And in that there was some video and audio works, but there there was also a a bucket full of um, detention grade disinfectant, the sort of disinfectant that... The smell. Mm. And I know that smell because I've been in a lot of prisons. So um, it was that um, particular brand of disinfectant was there. So very immersive experience, you know, really Mm. plays on all the senses when, Mm. you know, you're not just reading words, um, you're actually sort of hearing things, looking at things, smelling things, being in a particular carceral space Mm. that really kind of frames a particular experience. Mm, That's amazing. And I remember you said the other day that with the law, so much of it is is recorded but it's all paper I really liked you had this notion of yes it's all paper but a lot of people can't connect to that but if you if you put people in a space and you put them in that situation of course people can start to really connect and empathize with what's going on so I think that's really powerful as well in some of your work so it really shines through that's great yeah because I think that the legal documents are quite sort of um, inert and kind of bland in a way. And, I mean, part of my contribution to that exhibition is that I I did actually dig up all the legal documentation and and it all sat there as slabs of text. But And I think it was really interesting to compare my slabs of text (laughs) with what the artists have done, which was just so much more engaging. And I think Mm. so many people came through and were just really um, impressed and moved by the exhibition, uh, including family of Mm. um, various victims um, of injustice came through. Yeah. Was that very special to have them in the space? Oh, it was special and confronting Mm. and difficult. Um, Actually, on the opening night of the exhibition, we were so nervous about 
how they would respond. Of course, you know, I mean, yeah. they they obviously knew what was going on. They were intimately involved, so mm. it's not like it was a, a surprise. But yeah. it's still sort of always hard to know how people will come mm. in and um, and and respond to it. So I know uh, one family they'd travelled all the way from Walgut to Newcastle for the opening, um, which is about like six hundred kilometres or something, mm. and they came in and saw the exhibition about their deceased son and. And the father just went, yep, yep, that, that's right, yep. Wow. And just not, you know, not too much to say mm. but, you know, really appreciated, I think, mm. um, what the artist had done in that situation. Mm. This is making me think of the idea that in your art, are you trying to represent the truth? Um, in in my practice, um Truth. What is the truth? <laughs> okay, let's have a class on postmodernism. No, let's not. Uh, look, I think um, there's a truth of experience. Uh, I think in any, especially in the law, you mm. know, there's everyone's after a legal truth. Mm. So in a criminal trial, for example, we're trying to work out is someone guilty of an offence? Of course. Are they not guilty? Now, mm. being not guilty doesn't necessarily equate to innocent, of course, mm. but not guilty mm. or guilty. Um, and of course, a, a legal truth can be established during a criminal trial, but we also know that people can appeal and mm. they can then, you know, uh, not uh, be found uh, not, not guilty or acquitted or there's sort of various procedural things that can occur. Mm. So another truth can be created. Mm. So I think truth is not necessarily a stable concept mm. uh, and I think we have to be just sort of perhaps looking at a subjective truth uh, mm. of <laughs> some of the time. So um, my own practice, uh, I guess I'm not necessarily after playing necessarily with the truth or anything. Mm. I guess I'm sort of particularly interested in um, in translating some of the legal text uh, into another form, mm. um, something that's more tangible, material, uh, again, something that's uh, a more sensorial mm. as well. I like sort of things that are both visual and audio, um, also have some sort of three-dimensional dimen three elements to it yeah. too. So um, That's amazing. And you've spoken about before some of the some of the text that comes out of trials in particular, you described it once as dark poetry, which I really liked. What What do you mean by dark poetry? I guess, yeah. So some of my earlier work when I was doing my Masters by Research, that body of work called Word of Mouth was very much about taking these text fragments. And I was just so surprised by how evocative the mm. language was that witnesses used and you know they were just sort of talking fairly matter of fact about well matter of fact about murder which is I guess uh, you know, <laughs> I know um, but just some of the language that they came up with sometimes they repeated phrases wow. which was really really potent and actually sometimes oh actually yeah one of the one of the murder trials I went to um, and actually the person was acquitted of murder in that case, but she kept on talking about how she was saying to people, I'm talking about truth and lies. And this notion wow. of truth and lies came up so mm. much throughout um, the uh, testimony. So that was an interesting uh, sort of phrase that I ended up playing with a little bit. Mm. Um, but even some of the expert witnesses come up with interesting phrases. So I know in one case someone was talking about how someone would have died and mm. how 
you know, with the amount of blood that they had lost, that there would have been a clouding of consciousness. And I thought, wow, clouding of consciousness. That's, again, an evocative little phrase um, that I hadn't heard, but I think it's a phrase that people use a lot in medicine, Mm. but I hadn't heard that one before. But, yeah, I think it's this... These characters, these narratives that I couldn't make up if I tried to. And no. so when you hear it, it's just surprising. Mm. Um, it's there's a, there's a beauty to it in mm. a very disturbing way, I <laughs> yeah. guess. Um, but, um, yeah, with a- acknowledging that this is something incredibly tragic. Mm. Um, there's someone's lost their life if it's a murder trial. Yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah, it's interesting to put, take that text. And I, I should say that I always completely de-identify Good. things. <laughs> Good so <to> <laughs> I'm not – my work is not about creating anything that's explicitly no. um, violent or anything. Mm. It's very much about taking text and actually translating it into something else and translating it away from the person who may have spoken it. Mm, that's amazing. And so then with your – when you actually practice art and when you're creating art, do you feel a sense of calm? What's your, it, does it make, is it like a release for you or how, how do you kind of experience art when you're actually making it? Yeah, it's, it's not calm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think um, anything that you do professionally, whether it's writing or mm. if you're a professional musician or actor or whatever, um, if you're sort of, if that's work, it's work. Um, mm. So I don't find it calming and certainly the material, <laughs> the content isn't calming either. <laughs> um, and in fact, sometimes I feel slight, a slight sense of post-traumatic stress mm. you know, disorder, I think sometimes. Um, when I'm looking at some of the material, it is just so unbelievably bleak, mm. dark mm-hmm. um, and uh, disturbing. So... Um, I don't find it calming, but what I do find when I am making art that I am incredibly present. So it is, you know, almost an exercise in mindfulness or some sort of meditation Mm. that you just disappear into that particular space Mm. and you forget about everything else and you forget about picking up your children from school and stuff (laughs) like that. (laughs) That's, That's excellent to hear. And so... Then bringing it back to academia, how long have you now been at the University of Sydney? Um, I've actually been here for 14 years, but I did start off as a casual um, here. So I was just um, a research assistant and a casual um, tutor and lecturer for a couple of years while I was still finishing off my PhD and everything. Mm. So I actually started here full-time in 2017. So I'm actually, despite my... um, obvious signs of maturity. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sort of, uh, well, I guess I'm now maybe a mid-range uh, career um, oh, academic. Well, so fantastic. We're uh, very lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. You're yeah. very kind. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, it's, it's, it's so exciting hearing what you've achieved. You've done so much. You have a whole family as well. It's amazing. Um, and so could I also ask quickly as well, um, I'm going to spring this on you. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, gosh, you have sprung that on me. <laughs> oh, I don't know, but I look, uh, I think uh, to go with your passions, mm. I mean, it, it's really cliched. I know it's really cliched to say <laughs> that, but seriously, when I look back and 
Having started off in commerce law, I knew within the first five minutes of accounting in my first subject in the commerce, I knew that I hated it. And I should have listened to my gut instinct and walked out the door. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as the tutor said, yeah, debits are on the window and credits are on the door, I should have taken that door <laughs> and gone out. Um, I should have enrolled in arts at that point in time. Mm. So I think listen to your gut instincts, um, whether it's about your career, whether it's about your, uh, you know, special person in your life, whatever. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> listen to your gut. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great yeah. one. Um, and also just to round off everything, I really wanted to hear about you have this excellent upcoming kind of research work you're doing on motels. Can we talk about that? Oh, sure. Yeah. So my current art project is called the Crime Scene Motel Project. It's been sort of ticking over for a couple of years. Oh, it sounds amazing. Sorry. So <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to hear. So can you explain to listeners what it's about? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm going to have a solo show um, this year, but it all started, um, it came out of my teaching of criminal law. So there's a case that we have to teach in criminal law every year. And it's a, uh, there's one case, it's a really weird case. Most criminal lawyers know it because the factual situation is so odd <laughs> and extraordinary. It's kind of a supernatural case, but it's a, it's about sexual assault and mm. it's about um, an aggravating factor in this sexual assault uh, that there were multiple offenders mm. in a particular space. Mm. And so it's a, the case and why we teach it, because it's about this legal term called in company. But anyway, mm. I won't talk about that. But what was really interesting when I read that case um, is the judge's description of the spaces where these supernaturally inspired sexual assaults actually occurred. And the judge made some comment like, um, you know, these occurred in very cheap budget motels. They were hardly suites in a five-star hotel. So I was immediately, that sort of really piqued my interest. And mm. I thought, wow, that's fascinating. When I realised that the motels were actually just down the road from the university, I hopped in my car and did a quick drive-by. Mm. As soon as I saw them, I thought, I've got to go and stay there, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah, so over the last couple of years, I've been identifying um, crimes in New South Wales mm. motels. So I'm mm. only interested in motels mm. as distinct from hotels. Mm. I like motels because there's an implicit connection with the motor vehicle. Mm. So you can typically drive your car to the front door. So there's a real clear connection between a car and mm. the motel room. And as a you know, my analysis of motel crime scene cases has shown me mm. there's a really close connection. Like yeah. if you want to stick a body in a boot or, yeah. you know, transferring your meth lab out of your car into the <laughs> motel room. Um, you said a very... <laughs> the other day that um, you told us a, a quick story about a meth lab. So one, there was a motel where they busted a meth lab because they recognised the smell. Could you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised to find out that motel rooms are not infrequently used as sort of mobile meth labs. I, I couldn't believe it. And it's something that happens um, all around the world because I've looked at cases from Canada, mm. the States, New Zealand and Australia. And I had a feeling this was maybe a case from New Zealand. But um, obviously the motel operator had become aware of the smell of mm. meth and wow. and um, uh, they sort of walked past a room and suddenly smelt it and, yeah. and obviously called uh, the local um, law enforcement who came and, and busted this meth lab. Wow. <laughs> so they, they literally, it's so common they recognise the smell. Apparently, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. <laughs> and so in your experience of the motels across like New South Wales, um, 
what have you found out um, in, with your research there? Has it, are they all pretty, what do they look like? Can you share a little bit about what you've discovered? Yeah, so I only go and stay at motels that are pretty run down. I kind of like a particular aesthetic. Um, they have to be really B grade. If they've been renovated since the 1980s, I'm probably not interested in staying wow, at them. So, so they super have, specific. Yeah, yeah, they have to be pretty retro. So that the actual heyday of motels in Australia is mid-century, so from the 1950s, but particularly 1960s and 1970s mm. were the heyday of motels. And they were very much modelled on the American mm. uh, motel. So we kind of see a translation of the US um, motor in, motor lodge uh, motel mm. into um, the Australian landscape. So um, I think, yeah, motels are really interesting. As I said before, they're closely connected with the motor vehicle. Mm. So you'll see it's basically... It's a private space, but mm. it's a shared space because anyone can go and stay there. So there's yeah. sort of this strange conflation of public and private space. Mm. Um, they're a place of great transience, mm. churning populations, although it's interesting that in many motels they're often a very cheap form of accommodation mm. and sometimes the only accommodation that people can find when they are released from prison oh. or even for people when they're escaping domestic violence. Of often course. there's, you know, we don't have enough facilities no. for people who are actually in a crisis situation Absolutely. so it's really unfortunate that sometimes they end up there mm. so yeah we have these strange places of transience anonymity mm. private public and of course the central motif of any motel room is the bed yes and it immediately designates that space as a sexualized space mm. so surprise surprise an awful lot of sexual assault um, and disturbing a lot of child sexual abuse oh. Uh, Lolita is, of course, a piece of literature, mm. um, but uh, it, it actually talks a lot about travelling mm. around motels in the States mm. uh, because they are places that afford mm. privacy yeah. for something that is um, a, a illegal form of <laughs> act with a child. Yeah. Um, so Lolita, unfortunately, is played out in a lot of those places. But there's wow. a lot of – there's murders – Mm. Um, I don't look at people completing suicide because that's actually not a criminal offence mm. um, in, in Australia. Mm. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of, you know, really petty crimes mm. and people just trying to hide out from <laughs> law enforcement. Yeah. Um, people Hiding hi their weapons in their bathrooms maybe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. If they've got a manhole cover, yeah, that's, you know, that space where you hide your, your proceeds of crime and your weapons. Um, but, yeah, mattresses, you hide mm. things under the mattress. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's a range of sort of, uh, offenses like mm. that, but sexual offenses, unfortunately, mm. are high mm. on the list. Yeah. A lot of drug offenses. There's some motels, especially in the States that are basically just yeah. hubs for drug dealing yeah. and, and drug so taking. What is your process when you go for a stay in one of these fabulous motels? <laughs> do you, do you walk in and... Uh, do you take photos of things? Yeah. So what I do is I go and stay at these places and before I sort of dump my bags or anything, I try and take the room unawares. Mm. Like I wanted to see the room as it is before I kind of intrude into that space. So I try and take lots of photos. I've taken hundreds of <gasps> photos. I've probably, I don't know, got about 900 photos wow. or something. So I try and do very fake, you know, faux forensic photography. <laughs> 
Um, and I usually do that with the very banal technology of my iPhone. Excellent. So I, I love... We're not it? sponsored. <laughs> no. Oh, sorry. Yeah, my smartphone. Sorry. Um, <laughs> So um, they're banal rooms filled with really banal kind of fixtures and fittings because they're really cheap and nasty. So everything has this great aesthetic of banality, which I really like. Mm. But I know that these are spaces that have experienced some extreme trauma. Yeah. So there is this um, layer of of menace when mm. I go into these places because I know about these yeah. places. But, but, of course, most people go and don't think about that. No. But I've recently had a uh, book chapter published in a volume called Ghost Criminology that looks at the traces mm. um, of these spaces, the traces of human experience and trauma that remain mm. within that particular space. So I know about these spaces. So I go in there. But I'm trying to capture it unawares mm. and just capture a sense of banality. But hopefully through that process, um, I'm, I'm sort of capturing something of the accumulations, the accretions of mm. human experience that have gone into those places. So mm. I very, I mean, like I love light switches because so often they're covered in, you know, a couple of decades worth of fingers, Grime. <laughs> grimy fingers and the wow. jugs and... And yeah, when it's you're know, lying on that mattress, that lumpy mattress and the stale pillow, yeah. it's I can't help but think, you know, who's been sleeping in my bed? Yeah, wow, I am so intrigued. So, do you know any? Can we have a sneak preview of maybe what dates your exhibition will be playing this year? Or? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, a film. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's uh, from around oh the twenty first of June, I think, through to the beginning of July. Oh my goodness! It's uh, in a gallery. We will be there. Yeah, it's in a well, gallery I'm in Marrickville. So ready to see this. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, no, I'd be. I'd love to tell you more about it. Yeah. Oh well, thank you so much. And th there's just so much to process. I love your process is so fascinating because I love that you take in. Yeah, exactly like what you said, the banality and like the kind of insignificant parts of a room that people would never think about or even touch. You've really considered and yeah, it's just amazing to hear. Do you find it very spooky at all when you're in those spaces? Mm, not necessarily spooky. I mean, I, I do look at it um, when I do this research, when I write about it from mm. an academic point of view, I kind of look at it through this notion of ghost criminology. Mm. And that's not necessarily about woo, yeah. you know, those sorts of ghosts. But it is, as I said before, it's kind of looking at traces, yeah. um, palimpsest, those mm. sorts of things. Um but I guess the only thing, I don't find it spooky from a ghosty point of view, but some of these places are a little bit um, edgy, shall mm. I say. Mm. Uh, so I do kind of sometimes feel a little bit of trepidation at yes. night time when I turn off uh, the lights and I can still hear people outside, mm. you know, walking around the place and things. So, yeah. And often the security is pretty dodgy in these places, so I usually you know, shove a table against the door and things wow. like that. But yeah. I mean, I've never been threatened. It's just mm. my own projections, I think. Mm, of course. Well, you know what, what what has happened in these rooms sometimes, so definitely it makes sense. Well, I am just, I'm kind of speechless of some of the things you've told us. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, thank you for coming on this podcast, for telling us about your art. Uh, if people are interested um, Carolyn's art is available. You can see it online. Um, there's some stunning paintings and also obviously the kind of audio visual media. Um, you can look on it. You have a website, right? I do. Because we've yes. stalked it. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I need to update it actually. <laughs> um, it's really good. And uh, there's also even locally for UCID students on campus, um, level three, 
Can you tell us about, there's a little exhibition there. Oh, yes. So um, I've curated with uh, rare books, uh, rare and special books in the Fisher Library. We've got Tentacular, Spectacular uh, on level three. So we're going all octopusy, squiddy, krakens, um, <laughs> Lovecraft. Uh, so, yeah, please come and check out the nice little display in the cabinets on level three. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, one of my sons is a 3D printing props maker and he's wow. made quite a few tentacular things and yeah. octopuses as well for that so that's really um that's uh that's great if you want to see some 3d printed um cool. tentacles yeah <laughs> <laughs> that tickles your fancy that's great so thank you so much again for joining us we've loved chatting to you it was an absolute honor um but yes thank you for joining us on the road to find out well thanks for inviting me it's been a great pleasure oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>